Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Requiem Radio. Today, we have our guest with us, Louis Ungit. Is how you say your last name, sir? Right. Yep. And we are discussing his book that he has published, The Return of the Dragon. He is the author of this book that covers the use of psychedelics and interdimensional beings. And he discusses more in depth of the harmful effects or uses of psychedelics and what it has on the mind and consciousness. Today, we're going to be discussing his novel and going into detail about it. A link would also be applied below when we post of his novel for anyone interested in purchasing. Hey, Z, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Um, yeah, it's um, sorry for that. Um, just a little more function on my side. Uh, hello, as uh, usual, it's uh, Hazy Dialects, um, your favorite uh, constant profile changer. Gitzo Essie is an avid Twitter user and um, the co-host of um, Requiem Radio, who's here with our guest, who um, is a bit of working in tandem with our previous guest a while back ago, Marcel, who discussed extensively about psychedelics. And I think it's very interesting to have both perspectives about the particular topics. And since uh, Solar is so exceptional finding guests and knowing where to look, we found ourselves not only with somebody who does have strong opinions about psychedelics, but has done extensive research for the purposes of not only divulging the information to the public at large, but has written a book about it. Um, for that, um, I would like to have our guest um, talk a little bit about himself and just the book in general. Um, nice to have you on, and uh, I'll leave the floor to you. Hey, uh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, um, so... Like you said, uh, my name is uh, Louis Ungit, and uh, I have um, I'm an author that writes on a lot of different subjects. I have a Substack, Louis Ungit um, at subs or dot substack dot com um, that you can check out kind of my writings. But uh, this book in particular has been um, published about a year ago, and it has been you know some of the bestseller lists and it's been very successful and and kind of reached a lot of important people that um really appreciated the work and i think it's very relevant for today because um in the western world psychedelics has become kind of the in thing again the popular thing so basically what this book seeks to do is to find out what is going on with psychedelics um to look at um what the history of it is um, look at uh, how we should view them, whether we should be accepting of them or whether we should reject them and kind of engages them uh, looking at all of that put together. Uh, my personal background is I've got degrees in philosophy and theology, um, a degree in science and a degree in non-related but business. Um, and also I just read pretty voraciously. So started doing research on this book a couple of years ago and um, really dove deep into it, read everything I could find, talk, look, looked at all the scientific studies. A lot of those are super interesting, just uh, reading those uh, without commentary. Um, Johns Hopkins has done a lot of work on them and uh, as well as University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, New York University, et cetera. So, um, did a lot of work on that and uh, just kind of tried to integrate my very uh, multi-disciplinary uh, background and tried to bring it all together to bring a coherent 
picture of what psychedelics are. And, um, you know, my overall, just, you know, full disclosure, my overall takeaway is they're probably not something we should be messing around with. And there's probably a reason why they were taboo in Western society. Um, so not a positive view of them in the end, but I tried to give them a fair shake in the book um, as I as I went through some of the studies. And why did you name it The Return of the Dragon? Out of curiosity, the title. Yeah, so um, it's kind of a prevalent theme throughout the book um, where I just looking, as I mentioned, some of the philosophy and, and theology behind it. Um, there's always these myths of serpents um, throughout history. Um, there's uh, there's a book called um, The Serpent Symbol in the Ancient Near East um, by um, a, a professor at um, Yale um, who, by the name of Wilson, Leslie Wilson, and he wrote about uh, the serpent symbol um, and how all these ancient societies all worshipped a, a serpent deity. Um, and that's something that obviously you also see in a lot of other societies like the Mesoamericans, um, the Aztecs, for example, worshipped um, a feathered servant, a serpent, uh, Quichuacuatl, and um, as well as a bunch of other serpent deities. Um, so there's there's this kind of ancient idea of the serpent. Um, and then one of the interesting things that you find over and over again um, within people that take uh, psychedelics today is that they say they interact with a serpent deity um, or a serpent entity. Um, Graham Hancock, who's you know best-selling author, wrote America Before, as well as some other um, best-selling uh, books. He talks about how the fact that when he takes ayahuasca, he's a big proponent of ayahuasca. He talks about when he takes ayahuasca, he um, often interacts with a, a serpent human hybrid that he calls Mother Ayahuasca. Um, and he said, this is something that almost everybody that takes ayahuasca sees. Um, so kind of the return of the dragon is a, a reference to that of there's these ancient dragons that people um, interacted with. And now we're kind of resurrecting those um, with the use of psychedelics. And just for me, that was a striking um, parallel that we see between the ancient world and, and today. Yeah, I also liked how in your chapter one, Pandora's box, you were talking about Zeus giving Pandora a box and warning her never to open it. And then you go into more detail of like other myths and traditions and stories, even the serpent in the Garden of Genesis, or sorry, the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. And I find very interesting parallels. You see it as a universal thing amongst different cultures and beliefs. Yeah, it is amazingly. Once you start looking into it, it's amazing how consistent it is in history. I mean, just every society almost has some some sort of serpent deity, including the ancient Greeks, including the ancient Romans, um, including the the Vikings. Um, I mean, you just go around the world, and everybody had some kind of serpent deity that they worshipped. All right, last thing, and I'm going to pass it over to Hazy. But what inspired you to write this novel? Yeah, well, just to be clear, it's not a novel. It's a non nonfiction book. Hopefully, okay, um, I, yeah, no, no yeah. problem. Um, but yeah, what inspired me was really just kind of the zeitgeist that's around right now around psychedelics, where you have people like Joe Rogan, who's obviously wildly popular podcaster, um, that just promotes psychedelics all the time on his show. Talks about ayahuasca. Um, 
And then you have people like Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, the f- football player that talks about he had like a born again experience, um, not a Christian one, but a, a non-Christian born again experience with ayahuasca, where he said he felt like he was born the first time after he did ayahuasca. Um, you have other social commentators um, kind of promoting their use, um, including guys like Scott Adams, you know, conservative people you wouldn't even think would be into psychedelics all of a sudden are into psychedelics. I found that interesting. And then in addition to that, as I started to like research uh, ayahuasca um, and DMT, by the way, I'm going to use ayahuasca and DMT somewhat interchangeably. Um, their uh, dimethyltryptamine is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, and they've been able to isolate that and create a chemical version of it called DMT. So anyway, if I interchange those, it's, it's not because um, it's just easy to interchange those. But basically, the, the use of DMT, um, which didn't even exist, uh, well, it existed, obviously, historically, but wasn't at all kind of in the hippie culture um, is now widespread and, and being used more and more um, by just normal people. Um, there's magazine articles written on it, et cetera. And um, I started to look into like what happens when you take DMT. And I don't know if you guys have looked into it, but it's super interesting. It's like amazingly consistent visions that people have. They see these geometric shapes that look kind of like Aztec, uh, step drawings. Uh, if you guys can picture kind of Aztec art, that's what it looks like that people see. Um, they consistently see entities um, that they interact with. Um, they consistent, you know, the the cons- if you've heard machine elves, this they'll see machine elves. Um, they'll see um, serpents, um, like I mentioned earlier, and um, I just found that incredibly interesting. Like people are all doing this drug, and they're all seeing the same things. I was just fascinated of like what is going on. And that's really what drove me down this rabbit hole of doing the research on it, studying the uh uh reading the the studies and and looking into um what we know about it scientifically and then also um like I said, I, I think my book kind of takes a, a turn midway through and starts looking at the the philosophy and theology of it as well. Hey, Z, you want to add anything with that? Um, it's interesting. Um, mostly, I was uh, that. That's usually my question. I usually ask for um, our guests who come on is uh, what innately got you into the particular topic or subject matter, and uh, what like inspired a deep dive. And I suppose the um, with that question being and um, answered, um, one of the interesting facets of uh, psychedelics in terms of its uh, discourse. I think since no one's really asked this question, who do you think um, in terms of the political spectrum you've seen, the large array of individuals speaking about it, who do you think has had the most sensible or responsible um, discussion of it? In terms of who has had the kind of the best take on it, the best, most responsible view on it. I, I don't know. That's actually a hard thing. In, w- yes. in some ways, that's why I wrote my book is like, I, I felt like you either have people that are big proponents of it, um, guys like Joe Rogan, Graham Hancock, et cetera, or you have guys that are um, almost, it seems like uh, hardcore against it, but not necessarily for great reasons. Um, and, you know, often 
religious or um, just culturally conservative people um, that are against it, which um, are great, but not necessarily for the reasons that you would, that I at least would agree with um, on that. And so I, I thought it was worth, that's really why I wrote the book was because I, I think it was a empty space. I, I don't know that there's a great um, person that I agree with. It's funny. I, I'm in the end, I'm anti psychedelics in the book, but in a lot of ways, I agree with a lot of the pro drug people on a lot of things that they're saying in that I agree with um, Graham Hancock, for example, when he, and um, we talked about this a little bit earlier uh, before the show started, but when he started um, discussing the fact that he does not believe that this is just a scrambling of the brain. He believes this is um, a retuning of the brain to see something real. Um, so it's not, um, you know, it's, it, we're all kind of like in America, even religious people tend to be materialistic in our, our view of the world. And so we, we take this physical drug, it does something physical to our brain, and we just assume that the result is a physical result. And we have some kind of brain malfunction, we see colors and uh, think that we're talking to things, and we sober up and we realize that it was all kind of like a dream or whatever, but it wasn't real. And what Graham Hancock says is he doesn't think that's true. And I agree 100% with him on that. <laughs> like, I, I think that there's something more going on, something much more interesting than just brain chemistry going on. And, and so in some ways, I would say read Graham Hancock, except for he's so pro-psychedelic that I can't just tell people to go read Graham Hancock because I, I disagree with um, the, the use of them. I, I think um, we have to be a lot more cautious about what exactly we're bumping into. And it's funny you mention that too, because even our prior guest, who I'm sure you guys are black and white in a lot of your views, he's also in the position to be like, hey, it's really strange that people like Aaron Rodgers, these guys are promoting psychedelics among, you know, like right wing conservatives. And he's saying, like, I, he is strongly against the use of psychedelics. He feels like it's a very bad thing to do. So I find that very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I've I um I think I know who you're talking about um and I've interacted with him as well. His his reasons for being against it are largely um I think because a lot of the roots of it are from the intelligence community. A lot of the um reasons why psychedelics kind of came onto the scene in the 1960s, 1950s, 60s um were largely out of government institutions and government efforts. I'm sure you guys have heard of MKUltra. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of um, some of the projects that uh, the CIA has done on mind control, et cetera. And um, I would agree with him in many ways on that, um, but I, I think that it's actually more complicated than that. I think the reason the CIA actually got into psychedelics initially had to do with a lot more than just mind control. And we can talk about that in more depth if you guys want. Yeah, we can talk that down the road first. We just need to like cover more of your book. You're okay if us going through some of the chapters or things that I found interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Would you want to give us a brief elaboration more for Pandora's box? You kind of set the scene, you showed the myths. Do you want to talk about more reemergence? Is that going into detail of like what we discussed earlier? Hey, there's people, you know, going around promoting this again. 
Yeah, that's a, exactly kind of what that chapter is about. It's about just a lot of what we already covered, but just the fact that it's become pretty much mainstream now. I, I don't know if you guys listen to the Boys Cast podcast, but uh, Danny Polachek was talking about going to a party and he said people are just handing mushrooms around and he 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 said something along the lines of like mushrooms are just in right now and um that's a a wild thing for to be in kind of the conservative space not that um boys cast is necessarily conservative but they're definitely not hippies right and for like normal kind of straight-laced people to be passing around mushrooms at parties is crazy Right. Like it's just a it's a wild thing. So, yeah, that that chapter is mostly just talking about how incredibly mainstream it's become just in the last, you know. 20 years, maybe, you know, not not even that, just the last 10, 15 years is, is become incredibly mainstream. And then I don't know if you want to go to the next chapter, um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Sorry about that. Okay. I was having a bit of an issue. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so the next chapter um, is experiences. Um, and in that chapter, I really just go into kind of the, the science of it. So I talk about what exactly people experience when they do psychedelics. Um, so I, I went through... Um, a variety of different aspects to the what people typically have I, I talk about the fact that people almost always have some kind of spiritual experience um and so they say uh hey i i found god i or i met angels or i i had some kind of uh profound insight into the human human condition um they'll often come back with moral lessons they'll say things like uh you know, all these differences between us are are uh, bad, and we just need to all live as one. Um, or they'll say things like, "I I lost my sense of self, and I just started to um, unite with the universe." And so you get kind of religious experiences that people have. Um, Michael Pollan, uh, who wrote a book called "How to Change Your Mind," he goes through a lot of the science. He it's actually very um, good book in in that sense except for once again it's pretty pro psychedelic so i can't just blindly recommend it but michael poland said the following here's a quote he said you go deep enough or far far out enough in consciousness and you will bump into the sacred it's not something that we generate it's something that's out there waiting to be discovered and this reliably happens to non-believers as well as believers um so i found that interesting is that one of the experiences that people have when they they do psychedelics, whether or not they're religious, is religious experiences. <laughs> and I, I, that's, that's been repeated by study after study that they've had, that people have, have stated that they have religious experiences. Um, another thing people consistently um, experience when they, when they take um, psychedelic drugs, um, especially DMT and ayahuasca, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, geometric shapes. Um, Dr. Rick Strassman, a professor of psych psychiatry at the University of New Mexico uh, School of Medicine. He led a giant study on DMT um, and goes through kind of all the experiences. And this is one of the ones that he says is amazingly uh, consistent, that people see these zigzag shapes, they see kaleidoscope-like colors, um, and how consistently it looks like kind of Mesoamerican art. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you kind of listen to what people say it's it's like another consistent um experience that they have 
Another thing that is, this is more limited to DMT, although it's definitely true on other psychedelics um, like LSD, psilocybin. Psilocybin is the chemical um, active ingredient within uh, magic mushrooms. Um, but at least on DM, DMT and ayahuasca are kind of like the super version of psychedelics. You can get the same experiences that you get on ayahuasca or DMT if you take a ton of LSD or a ton of psilocybin. Um, but it's um, DMT and ayahuasca are by far the most potent psychedelics you can take. And um, one of the things that they've found when they give people DMT is they consistently see these entities. Um, this again, um, it comes from Dr. Strassman's study. Um, but he said that of, um, the participants in his study, 90% experience entities. Um, and there's just all these, uh, uh, very common experiences that they have. Um, and, and this is true. The crazy thing about seeing these entities is it's true whether you're a, um, indigenous person from Brazil taking, ayahuasca or if you're a hippie from Australia taking ayahuasca or if you're a, a businessman in California um, taking ayahuasca, almost everybody sees very similar entities. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Strassman talks about the fact that it's just uncanny, the similarities. Um, David Luke, who's a professor at University of Greenwich, um, says, here's a quote from he, him. He says, there's uncanny commonalities at the core of the experiences emanating from old folklore accounts of fairies, anthropological, and indeed firsthand accounts of indigenous cultures, as well as from FDA approved experimental research. So he talks about the fact that there's just, there's a, you almost are like seeing these mythical entities every time you take, um, uh, these DMT trips and, um, Another, so that's just another fascinating thing. The other interesting thing about these entities that people see, and this is very relevant to my point, is that when people come down, so like when you guys dream, when you guys take a nap or whatever, you, you have a dream, you'll see people, you'll see things, um, you'll see entities, but then you wake up and you say, okay, that was all a dream. Um, but when people take DMT, they come down and a large majority of them say that was real. They, they say those, those entities were actually real entities and they're still in existence. I just can't see them anymore. And um, so over and over again, people will, will, will testify that they were real. Um, and um, I go through in my book, I talk about some of these accounts. I just, I, in, when I was doing the research for this book, I, there's websites that will just have people's DMT stories. And I just went through a bunch of them. They're incredibly fascinating what people see and what people interact with um, when, when they go through those. Um, another thing I talk about in that chapter is the fact that there's this giant overlap between the psychedelic experience and some natural experiences. Um, so the mist kind of, if you think about a mystical experience, whether it's like a yogi, um, in, uh, Hindu yogi or, or, a, a Buddhist monk or whatever that has a mystical experience. Um, a lot of the reports that people have, a lot of the things that mystics report are very similar to what you see on DMT. Um, and, um, it is interesting. There's been a lot of studies, um, the journal of neuroscience, for example, did a study talking about how 
the use of um, meditation or yoga or rhythmic drumming or rhythmic dancing can actually have endogenous self-induced high that you get from it that gives you very similar state to what you get from the psychedelic experience. Um, so, you know, that's another very interesting thing uh, about um, the psychedelic experience. Being, yeah, is that similar to being almost like in a flow state where you have like a background like rhythm and you're just like doing your thing or you're like really locked in your work? Because I know psychology talks about like humans, if you get really focused or hyper-focused into one thing, your efficiency becomes better and they call it like flow state basically. Would that be a similar comparison? Um, I don't, I mean that there may be some similarities there, but that's not what these studies are talking about. These studies are talking about um, all kind of the things I talked about, the geometric shapes, the seeing entities, the ability to, you know, when people take DMT, for example, and I, I haven't talked about this part, the, the ability to kind of leave your, your uh, body um, and look at yourself from the outside, those things you can reproduce using kind of the, the, religious tricks, especially of the, of the East of, of Eastern religions, um, you're able to reproduce a lot of those, uh, states, um, naturally without the use of drugs. Um, and in many ways you could argue that's kind of what some of those religions are for. That's, that's what they're built to do is to reproduce that, that effect and that feeling. Um, and then finally, one of the things that's pointed out over and over again is that not only is it you can reproduce it yourself naturally, but also people naturally that have mental issues, people that have schizophrenia or people that have real bad bipolar often will say they, they experience the same things. And um, this is uh, William Richards, who I think he's a professor. I can't remember where he teaches, but he, he's uh, one of the researchers that I quote here. He says the following. He says, mental health professionals know well that similar experiences to those of healthy people on psychedelics, usually called hallucinations, are reported by distressed people who we often give the diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, so the amazing feelings, the visions, the insights that people report having while on hallucinogens aren't just found through the drugs, right? So they're found in a variety of different natural states um, that people have. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting overlap. Um, now, one of the crazy things that you see in these studies is that people talk about having out-of-body experiences. Um, one of the more shocking claims um, made by a lot of these users um, is that they can um, exit their body and see their body from the outside. And there's reports of people actually being able to, to observe things they wouldn't otherwise be able to observe. Um, there's um, also a telepathic element to this where people, that they'll take the drug together and they'll report that they were able to have a conversation without talking, just a telepathic conversation um, back and forth with each other to the point where a lot of people didn't even want to um, do it again because it felt like a lack of privacy, like someone was able to get inside their brain. 40% um, of the people in one of these studies reported having some sort of telepathic experience, which is just wild, it's crazy. Um, DMT actually, um, or ayahuasca, when it was first discovered, one of the names that it was given was telepathine for that reason, because people um, felt like they could become telepaths. Um, 
So anyway, that I'll, I've gone through a lot there. I don't know if you guys have any questions at that point. Um, there's a few other things I cover um, in that chapter, but um, do you guys have any questions on, on what I've talked about so far? Yeah, Hazy, you want to ask anything? Sorry, right, I myself muted because sometimes there's a bit of an audio issue that can't, sometimes arises. Um, so it seems like to me that um, what the book is discussing happens to be this notion of um, a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience being um, a, a consequence of consuming psychedelics. And that often makes me interested in the notion of, um, sure, this experience is occurring, and that is possibly like just the sensations, but um, could knowledge and information about where you are or where you're at in culture be um, the thing that informs what images that like transpire, like what like, during the experience in of itself. If, uh, would you believe it's reasonable to say that like where they are or what culture they are? Um, familiar with does inform the experience um yeah i i kind of touched on that earlier um so there are elements that are culturally influenced but what is interesting about ayahuasca and dmt is how much is not culturally influenced um it's interesting how consistent it is across cultures actually um and um like I, I mentioned, I think it was uh, David Luke, um, who's a researcher, I think he's at Duke, um, but he mentioned um, how it was uncanny, how much was independent of culture. So certainly there are some experiences that are culturally influenced, but it's, it's amazing how much is not culturally influenced. And do you think that this like uh, existence of like a cultural similar, like a cultural similarity that um, at the very least, some of these um, um, researchers uh, can't exactly find efficient um, answers for is proof of like a more like religious experience, if anything, or a spiritual exp um, spiritual um, experience, like a true one. Well, um, so I want to be careful here because the way the the way I write this book. Um, is I, I don't think it's good to just say spiritual versus, is it spiritual or is it non-spiritual without defining what we mean by spiritual? Um, so I don't, I, I, I think what I've talked about so far is not whether or not the spiritual experience is real or what spiritual is, but just the fact that people report the spiritual experience. That's, that's a fact, right? So people whether they're religious or not, they report having spiritual experiences. Now, you could say that's brain chemistry. It's not actually a spiritual experience, but they report a spiritual experience. So um, I, I think that's, that's what I've talked about so far. So, I'm, so, so far in our conversation here, I have not made the case that it was a real experience. I'm just saying that's what people say. We're not jumping to the positive or negative of it. I'm, I'm not jumping to like whether right, or not it's right, a, yeah. a case. Uh, um, but I was more or less just entertaining it like, um, um, I, I suppose the big, the big question is, what do you think, or if you would have to speculate, what do you think it's causing that, um, reoccurrence to transpire external of so, like societal norms or cultural iconography? Right. So, um, let's talk for a second about ma the materialistic explanations. Cause you're right. It's not like every scientist that studies this becomes a 
becomes religious or, or ceases to be materialist. Um, as a matter of fact, I would say most probably don't. But um, so science has done a lot of work to try and understand materialistic explanations for this. Um, understandably, that's kind of how modern science is, is materialistic by default, right? So that's that's what they, they try to, to find. So um, in um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, he talks about the science in depth. He, he has a whole chapter on it. And um, he's talks about all the scan they'll just to have the person take the drug um you know like lysergic acid diethylamine which is lsd or psilocybin and then um they'll study the workings of the brain um and he says the following he says the mystical experience may just be what it feels like to deactivate your brain's default mode network he says this can be achieved a number of ways through psychedelics or meditation but perhaps also by means of certain breathing exercises, sensory deprivation, fasting, prayer, overwhelming experiences, awe, extreme sports, near-death experiences, so on. So um, basically, the, the, to boil it down, most materialistic explanations are that. They say that it's, your, it's something about the drug deactivates your brain's default mode network. So basically, it says that your brain goes all different directions, the... the um, the neural patterns um, kind of reset and that that's the materialistic explanation. Um, now, however, I don't find that to be um, a good explanation. Um, and here's, here's what I, I said in the book. Um, I said, whatever insights that neuroscience might give us about what's going on in the brain, it's important to realize that observation of changes in the brain are not actually an explanation of what is being seen or experienced um stating that deactivating our brain's neural network um or default mode network causes the mystical experience is not much more explanatory than saying i took magic mushrooms and that caused a mix, uh, mystical experience right it's just a it's saying there's a physical phenomenon and then there was an experience associated with that physical phenomenon um it explains basically a mechanism um, but it doesn't necessarily speak to whether the experience itself is true or not, right? It doesn't speak to um, whether or not your your uh, experiences are in any way talking or, or interacting with something that's real. Um, to give the example I gave um, to show why that isn't true is imagine the entire world was deaf. Like we all had uh, an ear problem. And therefore, all of us lived in silence. Um, and we had developed sign language, et cetera, to communicate. And then imagine that someone from another planet came and did surgery on one of our ears or put drops in our ears or whatever. And all of a sudden, one person, only one person, nobody else, said that they could hear things. Uh, they said when a bird opened its mouth, it could hear, the, the person could hear a chirp when the... Um, dog opened its mouth, they could hear bark. When um, a glass fell off the table, they could hear it break. Um, and then the, the eardrops wear off and they go back to normal. And everyone that watched, observed the eardrop, you know, the, the procedure on the ears, they all say, well, we, it's weird that his, his thinking got all messed up there. He, obviously, some damage was done to his head when they dropped those ears, eardrops in there. He thought he could 
experience some other experience that happened with ears. Um, we figured out the mechanism behind it, and therefore we know that um, he wasn't really hearing anything um, because we know the mechanism. Now, obviously, that's that's a ridiculous um, example, but in some ways it shows exactly what I'm talking about, where if, if by um, modifying the default mode network of your brain, you are able to see into another dimension, if, if by modifying the brain in some way you're able to see or experience things that everybody else isn't able to experience, that doesn't tell you anything about whether those things are real or not. It doesn't tell you anything about whether or not um, the things that you um, are interacting with are actual things or not. It just tells you the mechanism. And so um, I think it's very important to know that pointing to a mechanism doesn't give insight about the reality of what the mechanism reveals. Um, and you could think about that with any sense that we have is that you can modify us to do something, do more. You know, you can modify your people do take drugs that make them be able to feel more. For example, it doesn't mean the stuff that they feel isn't real. It just makes it so that they are super sensitive to touch or whatever. I like that response, especially when it comes to materialism, because materialism, although it is very good and pragmatism has its flaws in the sense that it denies all things that are external. So to be a quote unquote pure materialist, you'd have to even deny concepts like, you know, love or things like that. You'd say love doesn't exist. It's simply com chemical compounds making you want to reproduce, which like other people believe like, hey, there may be a deeper meaning than just chemicals and compounds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, the other the other problem with a lot of this discussion when it comes to consciousness is the fact that even the most atheist people in the world admit that consciousness is unobservable. So if you think about um, when I say, you know, I, I feel I, this is what it feels like to be Lewis and kind of right now I, I feel fine. Um, another time I might feel tired, another time I might feel hungry. This is what it feels like to be Lewis, and that's, that's my consciousness. Um, consciousness is actually unobservable by science. Um, Sam Harris's wife, the famous atheist Sam Harris, his wife, Annika Harris, wrote an interesting book. I think it's called On Consciousness. Um, she also is an atheist, but she talks about the fact that um, science can't see consciousness. Um, it's can see phenomenon that it associates with consciousness, but it can't see the consciousness itself. Um, and the example she gave to show that is, um, let's imagine you created a robot with artificial intelligence built into it, and it was able to respond um, in a way that looked like it was conscious. Um, let's say it could laugh when you told a joke, it would cry when you looked like you were sad. It's um, new to raise its eyebrows if you said something interesting or frown when you said something rude. Um, it could do all of the things that we associate with consciousness. And we could scan its, its circuitry and we could see the, the various circuits going off when, when those supposed emotions are taking place. 
but it wouldn't be conscious. You know, it'd just be a robot that we built. There's no no reason to believe it's conscious any more than AI is conscious. We we know the ones and zeros behind it, so it, it wouldn't be conscious. And yet, we all the things that we associate with consciousness, it would be doing. And in the same way, humans, we do the same thing. We raise our eyebrows when something's interesting. We laugh when something's funny. We cry when something's sad. And you can scan us to see what's going on when we do that. But there's there's no evidence that we're looking at consciousness with those scans, right? We're looking at all the mechanisms that go into our behaviors. But the consciousness itself is completely invisible to science. And that's something that actually more thoughtful atheists acknowledge. It's called the hard pro problem of consciousness. Um, Steven Pinker, famous Harvard atheist, talks about that. Um, Richard Dawkins, uh, obviously giant famous atheist, uh, talks about that. Um, Sam Harris has talked about that in depth. So consciousness is actually unobservable. So when people say, oh, we found the mechanism that tells us that the experience, the, the altered consciousness you have on drugs is false because we know the mechanism behind it. They're really speaking to something that they don't know about. They don't realize, they don't know about the hard problem of consciousness because they wouldn't be able to say that if, if they truly understood the challenges with observing consciousness. You, you can't. So that's like this fatal flaw to this whole discussion when people try and come up with the naturalistic explanations or materialistic explanations for these things. Now, with that being said, I think maybe it might be good to kind of go to the next chapter because I, I think the next chapter um, is um, maybe the an important chapter when it comes to talking about spiritual versus material and what we're talking about there. Because I, I think a lot of people use the word spiritual and they don't know what it means. And, you know, we just have a sense, I think for most people, it just means something not real or something that is like imaginary. Um, even uh, Christians, I think for a lot of people, they don't quite understand it and they don't think about it. So I, I tried to put it in a d few different ways in my chapter four dimensions. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about that, but I can, and kind of talk about what my premise there was. Yeah, real quick, let's get Hazy, because I know he has a question to ask you real quick. Okay, go ahead, Hazy. Is Hazy speaking right now? I can't hear him. Hazy, are you there, man? I'm here. You hear me? Yep, go ahead. Okay. Um. Uh, I had a question earlier um, about the topic of uh, I believe it, 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 it kind of escapes me a bit right now, but um, um, I think we can just move on to the next topic about the subject matter. It's, it's fine. Um, yeah. We'll return uh, nope. later. No problem. And by the way, don't ever, you know, be feel, feel free to interrupt anytime. Like, I don't, I'm not offended at all. So, like, I'm going down these long rants, but, uh, feel no, no, so was asking questions. So, um, yeah. it, was, it, it wasn't even you. It was just so I was asking questions and I wanted to, like, let that uh, engagement transpire before I asked my question, but I oh, lost okay. it. That was entirely on me. So, um, we can yeah, move no on to the next, um, part of the conversation. Okay. Sounds good. So, um, we, like kind of all have this three-dimensional experience, right? Um, or four, if you count time. We all um, live in, in a world where we can observe, we can feel, we can touch everything. Um, and that's kind of the whole premise of science is that we can, the, the, we, 
we live in three dimensions. Um, but one of the interesting things about um, quantum theory that's um, just come to light in the last hundred years or so um, is the idea that there's not just three dimensions. There's up to 10 dimensions um, that there are. And those um, dimensions um, potentially, the, typically uh, guys like Stephen Hawking, Hawking will refer to those as small. But what he means by small is they're small from our perspective. Um, the, the analogy he used was a straw. So if you imagine looking down at a straw just at the tip of it, it would it would seem really small, but if you turned it sideways, it could be five feet long, right? Because it's just you, from your perspective, it looks small. Um, so the dimensions aren't really small. So there's this idea of multiple dimensions that a lot of um, scientists have have looked at, and um, like I said, Stephen Hawking talks about that. Um, but like other scientists, like astrophysicist Paul Sutter, um, talks about the fact that these dimensions potentially could um, be the explanation for dark matter. I don't know if you guys are aware of uh, dark matter, um, but it's the idea that 80% um, of the universe's mass is invisible to us. Um, and it could be, in theory, explained by forces and matter being present in other dimensions. And of course, that's like fairly new research and highly speculative. But it, I just found it interesting as I was researching this book that there's this idea of multiple dimensions within kind of atheistic materialism, right? There's this idea that there might be all these things and all this matter out there that we can't see, um, or at least not from our perspective, can we see it? Um, so um, the possibility of a fourth or more spatial dimensions that may contain entities is something that is, um, is certainly not outside of the realm of science. Um, and, um, this overlap between kind of this atheist materialist view of multiple dimensions and kind of philosophical christian theological um religious views of multiple dimensions is an interesting overlap where um the um idea of um if you know if you look at um dimensions when it comes to christianity um for example um, N.T. Wright, when he talks about heaven, he says the following. He says, N.T. Wright, by the way, is an Oxford New Testament scholar, but he says, um, the biblical understanding of heaven must be described in terms of dimension. Um, heaven in the Bible, this is a quote, um, is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life, God's dimension, if you'd like. Um, and so I, I think rather than talking about spiritual versus materialistic and this is why I talked about the fact that I wrote my book kind of so even a materialistic atheist could agree with the premise. But rather than talking about spiritual versus non-spiritual, which brings up all kinds of um, baggage with it in a lot of ways for, for people that are not religious, um, I think it might be more helpful just to talk about this as a dimension. Is it possible that psychedelics bring you into another dimension um, as um, a religious person, you might say that's a spiritual dimension. If you're atheist, you might just say, hey, it's another dimension, a quantum dimension. Um, but I think that it might be a more helpful way to look at some of these things rather than um, it immediately putting everybody's guard up with, is this a religious argument? Or is, you know, is this a quiet way to try and get me to become a Christian or a Hindu or, or whatever? Um, and instead, let's just 
stay atheist if you want to stay atheist and and let's just look at it like a dimension so that's kind of the point of chapter four is um let's leave the the title you know and we can you know depending on your religious background you can call it whatever you want but let's leave that title off and let's just talk about it as a alternate dimension and and then the question is do these psychedelics uh is it possible that these psychedelics are are as Graham Hancock argues, tuning you into a different dimension or allowing you... Oh, like, is it granting you access to it? Um, oh, my bad. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, it seems like they're discussing whether or not, like, um, these psychedelics are providing you an, a gateway and access to that um, ability to get into that dimension, which is, like, a theory that's been birthed out in recent years. Yes, yeah, that's that's exactly um, the the idea is like um, whether it's possible that um, there's many other dimensions around us and that for whatever reason our brain can't see them unless we modify our brain, right? So our brain allows us to see those other dimensions in some way, and that potentially that's what's going on when we take psychedelics. Um. In terms of um so this was this this portion of the um book is basically discussing uh basically just conceptually like getting there or is it just basically like laying out the ground laying out the groundwork for just like all right this is like conceptually what they think um this is the domain of now we're going to get into like, the legitimacy of whether or not it can or cannot get there because i remember you said earlier in the conversation about um not that you being uh apprehensive about that being the case um and i imagine that the rest of the chapters get into but um yeah i'm sorry go ahead okay go go yeah so that's i mean that ultimately that that is these first few chapters are laying the groundwork for it right so they're laying the groundwork for um the possibility that something real is going on. Now, um, if you want to know kind of what the case I'm making that something real is going on, I can tell you that. Um, and um, I, I can't remember exactly where in the book this is. So I'll, I'll just maybe this might be a good time to, to jump forward to why I think something real is going on. Um, is I think that, first of all, it, as I mentioned with consciousness um to try and observe it is impossible uh, science can't see it so how can we know about consciousness the only way we know is when people talk about it and sola touched on this earlier is like we know you love someone because they say they love you they we know you're experiencing pain because you say you're experiencing pain we know um, oh, yeah. you are that you, you're sad because you say you're sad, right? So we 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 can the only way to truly know whether your experience is real is by based on testimony. And yeah, like, of like, course, like common, say, uh, language that's, that's held. Um, but even like um, in terms of consciousness, in terms of sleeping, in terms of rest, like anger, all these things we articulate as being like the emotions of human beings are all like similarly communicated in a way. Um, like it's through that like unified uh, language of us all like talking about this as long as we have that we have like this unified like in, like implicit ability to presume 
collective understanding as to like what these things are and how we emote them. Um, right. I, right. And I also now remember what I was going to say earlier about uh, materialism, um, about the idea of like it being chemical reactions within the brain itself. And I thought it was interesting that like, even if that is the case, like I would just say like, like accepting um, that they do acknowledge it to be as such or would describe it as such. I don't think that's a, uh, that might be a reason for some to believe it to be a negative or something to be devalued, but I don't think uh, acknowledgement of it being in that way would um, behoove somebody to be like, that's not any reason for it to be invaluable or not something to be valued. It's, uh, I would say is comparable to saying that it, we exist in this earth for a finite amount of time. Isn't a reason to say that nothing that transpires within that finite amount of time doesn't matter. Something to take into that. Yeah. yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, and obviously I, that's, that's a big, big discussion down a kind of a, a different path. Um, and I, I think, you know, again, my argument for from this book is not necessarily a religious argument it it's um it's primarily focused on drugs right and what the drugs are doing and it is an argument for another alternate dimension um you know that a religious person would say is a spiritual dimension uh, but a materialist might just say is a quantum dimension um so yeah um i think I think that's that's true. So, um, hey, I don't know um, if, yeah, go ahead. Would you be worried at all with people reading your novel? I'm sorry, your book that they could take it the wrong way, as in, you know, oh, he's talking about drugs, like show a dimension, like that'd be almost like appetizing. Do you have any chapters like going into detail, you know, why it's like you shouldn't do that then? Yes, yeah, I do, I do. So remember, I'm laying the groundwork right now. Um, but let me just. I'll make the case that it's we're seeing real things. Um, I'll make that case real quick, and then we can move on to the next chapter, um, which I think does um, does start to talk about um, some of the potential downsides to it. Um, if, if that makes sense to you guys, I mean, this is your show. If if that's what you guys want to do, I, I can do that. Or if you want to go a different direction, I can do that. Too. Oh, no, all good. This is your episode. You know, I enjoy just hearing you talk. So keep doing what you're doing. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. So the the case that makes me think these are real experiences that people are having is the following. So, like I said, the only way we know what people are experiencing from a conscious standpoint, and Sam Harris would agree with this. Stephen Pinker would agree with this. Um, atheists have to agree with this. If if they understand the hard problem of consciousness, they have to agree with this. Is the only way we know is when sane and honest people tell us what they experienced right so if if someone is a liar or crazy or whatever maybe you don't trust what they're saying but if they're an honest person your your father your uh, brother your best friend your wife tells you what they experienced you trust them right and you, there's there's no reason for them to lie you would trust what they they experienced you trust it is real um and that's where I think we start to hear these testimonies. You start to read what people are experiencing. And I think over and over again, they say this was real. Um, so here's the crazy thing. So in the Johns Hopkins study, they found that a majority of atheists going into the study. So these, these are people that were atheists 
before they did the study, they took DMT. They said those entities I saw were real and they continue to exist. And I'm no longer an atheist as a result. A majority of atheists did that. Um, overwhelming number of people, as I mentioned earlier, said those entities were real and they continue to exist. Um, the, it's, it's almost the analogy I've used is if, if, if we could go to, let's say, the dark side of the moon or whatever, and all we had to do is send a rocket ship up and everybody goes to the dark side of the moon and they say, hey, there's little green men back there. And as a sane and honest person, he comes back, he says, there's little green men and they're really there. Um, and you say, well, I don't believe you. I think something crazy mentally happened to you when you went to the dark side of the moon. And then another sane and honest person comes back and they say, there was little green men there. And everybody's kind of shouting, there's little green men there. Even people that were skeptical to the little green men, at some point in time, I think you have to believe them. And I think it's um, to just kind of, uh, without any sort of um, irrefutable um, proof, you know, there is, it's an unfalsifiable position if, if you don't believe them at some point in time. So when you have so many people experiencing this, saying that was a real experience, and then we just say, no, it was a brain phenomenon. And they say, no, it wasn't a brain phenomenon. I'm perfectly sober now. I, like these are people. DMT only lasts for a few minutes. That's the, the the chemical version of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca lasts a long time. DMT only lasts for a few minutes. So people come back down and they're perfectly sober. That's the crazy thing about DMT. You, you come back and you feel perfectly fine. That's why a lot of people are doing it because it, it doesn't take a lot of time to experience it. And people come back and they say, "I'm perfectly sane. I'm perfectly sober." And those were real. That was real stuff. Yeah, a bit of pushback too, Lewis. What's stopping someone from saying, you know, "quote that those weren't real atheists" for these studies? What would you say to the skeptic who would like respond with that? Um, I mean, I, I kind of trust that the science was done right and that they did their interviews right. I don't know why people would lie about being atheists going into the study. Um, it was a decent size sample size. Um, so it just, it would be a lot of, it would be a lot of people that were lying going to the study and I don't know, maybe possibly, I guess, you know, anything's possible, but ultimately, I mean, if the, the, the interesting thing about atheism, right, is that it it relies on science right it relies on studies it relies on the scientific process so i i think you can't it kind of gets that whole unfalsifiable thing you can't once you don't like the scientific results say i'm going to reject that science behind the thing so i would say if, if you can produce another study that shows something different okay or if you can um show that uh show that that study was done poorly okay but i think right now it was done by a fairly reputable institution and um you know i i don't think there's a good reason to doubt it um furthermore i'll say just from an anecdotal standpoint i've talked to many atheists that had that same experience that are now not atheists so um since writing this book it's crazy because i've just had people reaching out to me on on twitter and reaching out to me um via Substack and email and the number of people that have said similar things of like, Hey, I was an atheist. And then I saw some stuff and I realized it, it, there was more. Um, so I, the re uh, reason I, I, I tend to believe the study is that I've had lots of anecdotal, uh, accounts of people again, that 
seem like sane and and trustworthy people that have uh agreed with the results of that so uh, what would your response be to people who would say that the sensation of being on in dmt or um lsd what have you um you say that like the sensation um provided um is what's um creating god in that sphere um um, versus them being ex- outside of that experience and them not continuing or not being constant. Like, would you think of the notion of them looking at the sensation that they're experiencing in that moment of time as, like, just simply what they're perceiving as God? Or, like, would you say to that? Like, would you say to them saying, or articulating the experience as being that? To the people who just isolate yeah, and say, and- well, that experience of itself is why they perceive it as God, rather than them coming to like some realization um, just by natural ongoings in every day. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I th- here's the thing is like, I, I think if, if um, we want to maintain hyper skepticism, right? If we want to say, no matter what, I, I don't. I don't want to believe that there's another dimension there that people are seeing. I, I think you can, right? Like, I, I don't think there's any proof in life for anything. Um, I, I think, you know, the old uh, philosophical statement that how do we know that I'm not a butterfly dreaming, I'm a human being? You don't. Like, ultimately, if you want to be skeptical of everything, you can. Um, but I do think that testimony from trustworthy people that have no reason to lie, and in the case of the atheists, have kind of a reason to lie in the other direction. I think we have to kind of take that testimony and to say, I, as someone that didn't take the drug, understand what they experienced better than them that took the drug, I think is presumptuous, right? I, I think ultimately these are sane and intelligent people that come back down and, and they're not brain damaged. They're, they're still, they go back to normal afterwards. And they say that was real. I don't know how we can deny what they're telling us it's again getting back to the analogy of the dark side of the moon and the little green men i I don't know how you could deny it um if especially if you yourself were to then try it and go see it right so that's the the thing is when people do try it they see it um and you have people that even people like joe rogan that are an avowed atheist i think he still would call himself an atheist but he says what he's seen is real right he's said that on his show so um I think that's the the interesting thing is like, can you maintain skepticism toward it if you believe that everybody that says they saw it is wrong? I think you can. I just don't think that's the most likely way to go. And I, I don't think that's how, I mean, ultimately science works by observation, right? That's the whole premise of science. Um, Descartes, for example, said, I, I, uh, I think therefore I am, right? That's the whole, that whole idea that I observe it that's the core of my knowledge, and that's where I get it. That that was the foundation for all science. Um, that was the foundation for the scientific uh, method. And if if the question is, is this real, and you test it, and you say, yes, it was real, um, and everybody that tests it says it's real, and it's not 100%, but it, you know, it's, it's a majority, like I said, of atheists and, and an overwhelming majority of all people. Um, if you test it and you say it's real um, over and over again, and it's, it's repeatable, I think it's that's that's the way kind of science works. If you want to follow science, now if you don't want to follow science, there I've got philosophical and theological arguments in the book as well <laughs> that we can go into. But I think from my age, I'm right now up to this point, I've kind of made this argument purely with a 
a scientific kind of uh, social uh, studies, et cetera, um, path. Um, now, I do, I do think there's philosophy has a lot to say about it, and I do think theology has a lot to say about it, which we can talk about. Um, but if just from a purely materialistic standpoint, I, I think at the end of the day, either you trust science or you don't trust science. And if you trust science, you got to trust the science. And if you don't trust science, then stop, you know, we should stop being materialists or whatever and, and start being something else. So that's kind of my argument in, in on that front. And, and like I said, I'm personally not a materialist and I'm personally open to the idea that the scientific studies are BS. But I, I think if, if we are going to trust the, the scientific studies, we, we should trust the scientific studies. And, and yeah, if, and if um, not, you know, yeah. I think it'd be worthwhile to like everyone to take their time upon like if, if you're being at the very least a true skeptic then you should research or at least um take the time to look over the research that has been provided so far by the people who are saying this is occurring um by the way i'm not sure or not if you've mentioned any of the uh, research um uh about the uh uh the drugs um the following drugs but uh if you could just for the sake of the audience at home, if you could uh, tell them some of the names of some of the um, research you used. I'll also be including it afterwards as well. Okay, yeah. You're, you're talking about the, the um, studies I was citing? Yeah, for the, for the, for the experiences of like the atheists and the ones who like... Yeah, that was the Johns Hopkins study. Um, I've got all the citations in my book um, and okay. I could email them to you later. But yeah, there my book is very well cited. It's got a footnote for every study that I mentioned. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like for the, for the um, people who are yeah. at home, that maybe they might want to venture in yep. and look at those studies. But uh, suffice yeah, it to so say... Um, if, if you just Google Johns Hopkins DMT study... Um, you should be able to find it. So, um, but I, I can, after the show, I can look for these citations and, and send them to you, but they're, they're all in, in my book, like I said, and I'll try and get them to you, but you can just, um, this, these studies are available online, so you can just look up Johns Hopkins. Yeah, if they're included study. in your book. Yeah, Lewis, if they're included in your book, there should be no issue, but for the audience, I would include, you know, a little thing, but that's after the podcast, we could talk about that. Yeah, totally. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, in terms of... Uh, you want to keep moving? Uh, yeah, go ahead, AZ. Um, yeah, I was going to uh, speak towards the... Um, like, most, um, if not all science, is definitely about, like, um, if I were to take something like, um, I am, like, I, I am what I am, or um, I am thou, it's usually, like... Um, the bedrock of that is like a, a theory of replicatability. Like if I can, like, I don't know how useful an idea or a concept is if I cannot like replicate it to you. Like if, if I were to go out of the way to say to you, um, this pencil will definitely turn the magma in about five minutes. You go, okay, I don't believe that to be the case. And then I consistently show you that we would want to research it because it is continuously a reoccurring phenomenon that is transpiring. And most research is like built upon like the um, replicatability or the ability to um, um, to show that the um, phenomenon, whatever that might be, is can, can indefinitely transpire with all the things to ensure that it happens the way it should have or ought to have. Um, in terms of um, ultimately is that that ultimately is my point though. You can replicate it. Like anybody that does these drugs sees the same stuff and they yeah, uh, uh, they report the same thing. So. 
you know, if, if you're skeptical, you take the drug and see for yourself if it's real. And if you come back and you say, actually, that was real. Um, I, I don't know how that doesn't meet that standard of, of being able to be replicated. And, and, you know, like, like Michael Pollan said, if you, if you do it enough, sooner or later, you bump into the sacred. Like, that's what he said is like, this has been able to be demonstrated scientifically over and over again, um, to non-believers as well as believers. So I think it is replicatable. I, I think it is, um, something that is repeatable. Um, and I think it is, uh, you know, the, the only non-repeatable part is you can't see it unless you do it right. That's the only non-repeatable part, but again, with the eardrops or anything else, example, we dark side of the moon, et cetera, that it makes sense that you can't. So, you know, to, to say it can't be replicated without the drugs is, is similar to saying you can't prove there's little green men on the dark side of the moon without going to the dark side of the moon. Right. So it's, it's but certainly, very I believe that, that um, certainly I believe that most of those people would probably be more skeptical in that circumstance or situation if they understood that they were not an influence when they were uh, citing these individuals in question, be like, okay, we can all collectively go there under the same um, soundness of like ability to evaluate whatever is occurring right before our eyes versus um, that experience, which you would have to go into it. Um, but sure, um, a lot of people would go, I right, go into experience. I felt the same things. Um, I interpret uh, similar things, um, even gods or like um, whatever um, like figure that came before you. Um, it's just interesting to hear these um, interesting uh, like additional um, like uh, like reiterations of their experiences because um, looking into um, especially with um, people like Boogie Two Nine Eight who has recently come out. Um, discussing his experiences on DMT and um, like experiencing psychedelics for himself. Um, um, what seems to be recurring from some of the um, ones I've been looking up as of recently, because I've been kind of going down a rabbit hole of looking at um, psychedelics, is this um, continuous ego death um, has been a very prominent subject matter and um, some of the things I looked up into. But I'm, yeah, I'm happy to like a very, very common experience. That's um, that's one of the most most common. But mm -hmm. so yeah, um, um, I didn't want to like bog it down entirely in this part of the conversation. We can, uh, um, we're well within our, um, we're well, um, I think we've flushed out uh, extensively <laughs> yeah. this topic. So we can move on to the uh, next one. Cool. Yeah, and I know, um, I know we were aiming for another twenty minutes here, and obviously we're through four chapters out of ten. And I did want to, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that I'm pro psychedelic. So I think that's one of the. Um, things like Marcel and I argued about this for a while when he thought I was pro psychedelic because I, you know, he's, he's anti-psychedelic and actually I am too. Um, the, um, so I'll try and fast forward a little bit here. Um, but one of the interesting things is that, um, so the next few chapters, I, one is I just talk about kind of the philosophical and religious parallel to the, um, kind of atheistic dimensions. So the if if you take the quantum physics multiple dimensions, there's a, a interesting parallel with all the religious and philosophical side of things. And I talk about the theology of it and the philosophy of it. Um, and in particular, I talk about how the fact that within philosophy, there's a difference between the lower gods, which would be like Zeus, um, and and the the pantheon of gods. 
and the divine. So within Plato and Aristotle, there's a divine, and then there are is the pantheon of gods. Um, and I talk about how there's an interesting parallel between that and kind of Christianity, um, where there's God, which is the equivalent to the divine in, in the Aristotelian or Platonic view. And then there's the pantheon of gods, which would be in Christianity, demons and angels. And I talk about how um, those aren't the same things. And so there's when we think of like paganism and we think of the multiple gods of paganism, there is a parallel within Christianity, even though it's a monotheistic religion, which is the the many entities or the many uh, beings that are angels and demons. And so what I um, then go into, and here's the interesting kind of the twist in the book is is chapter six, which is the serpent and the sacrifice. And I talk about the fact that when people take psychedelic drugs, and we talked about this earlier, they see serpents over and over again. Um, and um, this is so consistently seen, so everywhere. Um, but also when people take drugs, they see serpents. And I talk about, I, I make the argument that because ancient religions almost always used some form of mind-altering drug, that's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know, but I document it very well in the book, is that almost every ancient religion had some sort of mind-altering drug, either for the priest or for the people as a whole. Um, but there was almost always some sort of uh, mind-altering drug in, in not 100% of societies, but a lot of societies. It was more common than it was not. Um, and um, I talk about the fact that people uh, see these serpents, and then, here's the, the wild thing, so they, they see the serpent, and then they start sacrificing human beings. So one of the interesting things about human history is there's um, consistent human sacrifice. Everywhere you go, um, there's, there's human sacrifice. I talked about that Leslie Wilson book um, that's called The Serpent Symbol in the Ancient Near East. And um, in that book, he talks about um, the fact that um, the hu human sacrifice and the serpent entity go together. That everywhere you see the serpent entity, everywhere you see the serpent god, you see human sacrifice, and um, it's it's an interesting and creepy parallel. Um, but once you see it, you can't get away from it. Um, that you see this human sacrifice spread throughout the world, um, serpents spread throughout the world, and then the third part of kind of that unholy trinity is the use of drugs for spiritual purposes spread throughout the world. And um, if you ask the question of like, okay, they were seeing serpents, they were sacrificing to the serpents. Were the serpents the result of drugs? I, I kind of make the implication that they probably were. Um, as a matter of fact, that's what the Spanish said when they um, observed the Aztecs taking mushrooms they said they would see serpents they would see uh, entities and then they would become violent um so if you take those kind of three points together the sacrifice the serpent and the the drugs for spiritual purposes um you get kind of this dark uh triad that you see over and over and over again in history and 
Um, then the the question is: so if if these entities are real, right? So if go back to what we were just talking about: if the Johns Hopkins study is true, if we can trust people when they say they see these entities, what happens when societies start to kind of go on hyperdrive and start taking these drugs over and over again as part of their religion, as part of their society, if it becomes what they are, what happens? Well, we see what happens in history. We see over and over again, people start doing weird, creepy, terrible stuff. And sometimes the darkest imaginable stuff. And um, you have people like Graham Hancock goes on Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock says to Joe Rogan something along the lines of, hey, if only we could get all our politicians to do ayahuasca, then uh, we'd have a much more enlightened society. And I remember him saying that and me thinking, we, we have had that. We had, the Aztecs did ayahuasca, and then they sacrificed human beings at an industrial scale, right? They, they ripped the hearts out of living people. Like it, it was the, this, the, the false lie that's been given about psychedelics in society is this idea that psychedelics will bring enlightenment. That's the promise that Joe Rogan talks about. That's the promise that all the people we've talked about, Graham Hancock and Terrence McKenna and R. Gordon Wasson, over and over again, the promise is enlightenment if you do these psychedelics. But in reality, the opposite happens over and over again in history is you see the darkest um, of darkest, darkening, the, not enlightening at all, darkening um, that happens throughout the societies that do these drugs for spiritual purposes. And it happens um, as a matter of course. And so that's what chapter five talks about. Um, chapter six, I then touch on the fact that there is one major society that has not done drugs for spiritual purposes, has not made it a part of their religion or part of the culture, um, and that is the Christian religion. And um, it is, is actually is one of the biggest changes that Christianity made to the world. We never even talk about it. One of the biggest changes was that Christianity made it so that drugs were taboo, that people didn't do psychedelic drugs. And as a result, um, you have a very different experience in, in, in the world. And, and Christians over and over again say, you know, from the earliest days, they say, we're not going to accept the use of drugs for spiritual purposes. Um, and chapter seven really talks about that in depth. It talks about the fact that um, the Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the oldest versions of the Old Testament actually were also written in Greek. So what the New Testament writers quote when they quote the Old Testament, they quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the the oldest Bible we have is all in Greek. And that if you take just like an English Bible and you search for the word drug, you can't find it. But if you take a Greek Bible and you search for the word drug, it's all over the place. And that's because the Greek word for drug is pharmakia um, that is translated in English, typically translated witchcraft or sorcery. And the reason that the, the translation is um, the same for those two is because they were tied together. Just like I was saying, in ancient religions, pagan religions, drugs and sorcery, drugs and witchcraft, go together so much that the Greeks had one word for both. Right? It was, it was, it was pharmakia. 
Um, and the various, I look at the various lexicons in the book, the Freeburg lexicon, for example, says, uh, pharmacia is one who prepares and uses drugs for magical purposes or ritual witchcraft, sorcerer, poisoner, or magician. Launita lexicon says the use of drugs for any kind of magical effect or sorcery. Um, Liddell Scott defines uh, pharmacia as the use of drugs, potions, spells. So the reason that Christianity rejected the use of drugs for spiritual purposes out of the gate is because there's strong biblical prohibitions. So if you take that word pharmakia and then you go throughout the Old and New Testament, you get verses like Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, that says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, or engages in pharmakos, which is a, a just a different uh, uh conjugation of the word pharmakia. So it says, let no one be found among you that sacrifices your kids in the fire or that does pharmakia, drugs for spiritual purposes. Um, Exodus chapter 22 says, um, verse 18 says, do not allow the one that practices drugs for spiritual purposes to live. Um, if you look at Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter 33, verse 6, it says, talk, talking about the evil king Manasseh, and he, it says he sacrificed his sons in the fire of the valley of Ben-Himen um, and practiced sorcery, divination, and pharmacia and consulted mediums and spiritualists. So here again, you have like, there's these weird parallels throughout the Bible of human sacrifice, pharmacia, human sacrifice, pharmacia. Don't do those two things. Um, and it gets, it just gets repeated over and over again. So the warnings in the Bible are almost unhinged about uh, pharmacia. And as a result, Christendom didn't have pharmacia. That got carried over. The bishops refused to allow pharmacia, and throughout the history of the church, pharmacia was banned. Even um, Pope Innocent Seventh, I believe, um, in the 15th century, banned even cannabis uh, because he, he said it was associated with witchcraft. So this, um, this uh, practice of, of pharmacia was banned within Christianity, and as a result, um, you know, I, I think there's some pretty stark differences when we look at when the Christians showed up and saw what the Aztecs were doing with sacrifice, they were horrified. But when the Aztecs and, say, the Maya or the Aztecs and the Inca saw what each other were doing, they wouldn't have been horrified. And as a matter of fact, the, in the ancient Near East, outside of kind of the Hebrew world, um, the Carthaginians... For example, um, you know Hannibal, who almost took over the um, the Roman Empire. Um, they practiced human sacrifice. Um, the the uh, Vikings practiced human sacrifice. The Gauls practiced human sacrifice. So very few people would have been horrified by what the Aztecs were doing. But when the Spanish showed up, they were like, "What the hell is going on? Like, we need to stop this." And so I make the case that there was more than just human sacrifice. There was also a lack of pharmacia on the part of the, uh, the Spanish when they showed up. And I argue maybe those things are related. And now I, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to say everybody that does DMT is going to start sacrificing people or whatever. I, I don't believe that at all. And I know that's not true. I know people that have done it. Um, and um, I, so in no way is that the case I'm making. But what I do say is that when, if, let's, let's go back to the premise are we really experiencing real things? Are we really interacting with real entities? 
are these atheists that tell us they're interacting with real entities are they if if that's true if they really are then the next question has to be who are the entities are they good are they bad are they um helpful um joe rogan says they're helpful they say they helped him uh, learn about his life um or are they not good um and that's really the question we all need to be asking because it's one thing to have this hypothetical conversation or like, are they real? Are they not real? Should we do, you know, what are the effects of drugs, et cetera? But if they are real, it's like we're bumping into an alien colony and we need to ask, are those aliens good or bad, right? Are they, um, are these, is this other alien entity, this other dimension, even if you take it as a purely atheist thing, let's say we're somehow interacting with these, these the entities in another dimension, are they good or bad? And that's the question that we need to ask. And if you take that in light of the fact that every culture that has used these drugs has gone down very dark paths, incredibly dark paths with these drugs and has seen these serpent entities and then has committed the most horrific acts that you could imagine, I think at least we have to be skeptical. At least we have to question whether the very superficial advice they give us of like, hey, love everybody, whether they're being genuine with that. Like if you take them seriously, if you take them as as possibly real entities, um, you know, I, I think we at a very minimum, we have to be skeptical of of taking their advice. And that's the scary thing is you have people doing these drugs and then taking their advice. Joe Rogan says that, like that's what he says. Uh, Graham Hancock says that. He says that Mother Ayahuasca comes to him and gives him wisdom. Mother Ayahuasca, by the way, for him, is a serpent-human hybrid. That's what she is. So, um, And he says that she gives him advice. And so I, th I think we have to be incredibly skeptical of what's going on and what those are. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are just kind of sleepwalking into it. And they're saying, oh, I took this drug and this angel appeared to me and gave me this advice and I'm going to now change my life based on that advice. And I think th whether that's a smart move or a bad move depends on whether that angel you saw is a good angel or a weird demon from another dimension. Right. So like, I think it, it, there's, there's a big question mark there. So, um, okay. Yeah. Um, Lewis, we're wrapping up soon. I want to ask you again, first off, thank you for being on the podcast and thanks for like sharing your, your book with us. It's been really enjoyable. Is there any other research or any other things you'd want to share to our audience, like recommendations, like what they should check out getting into this subject? Yeah. So I have just a ton of stuff I've written on this, um, in, uh, on my website on my substack which again is just lewisungit.substack.com um so i've got lots of articles lots of chapters i did not include in the book um that are up there um that go into a lot of this in much more depth i have a whole article talking about what the spanish saw when they showed up um graphics of what what the um of there's uh drawings the spanish drew of of the aztecs t eating a mushroom and having like a weird lizard demon guy behind him with his hand over his head. So it was crazy stuff. Very interesting. So yeah, check out my Substack, And um, that's probably the best way to follow the work that I'm doing and uh, read the book. Like I said, it's got all the citations in there. So if you're curious of like, did this guy actually read the studies or did this guy, you know, um, cite what he's he's looked at it's got everything in there um you can go and you can look it all up yourself it's fascinating read the johns hopkins study yourself um it's it's very 
worthwhile, kind of interesting just to read um, as a study. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have. Thank, thanks so much for having me on that. Before you go, yeah. And of course, you're always welcome on our show. Are you working on any other books after this or any more studies besides your Substack, like standalones? Um, so I am working on another book. It's kind of a different subject, though. I'm, I'm writing on uh, artificial intelligence, technology, and science and looking at it from a similar perspective of like, is there, I, I think there's in some ways parallels to that and kind of the religious world. Um, there's a book called Technosis that I'm reading right now um, that um, draws a lot of those parallels together from an atheistic perspective. And I want to kind of look at that from um, a similar pers- perspective that I looked at this book. So I'm, I'm working on that. I hope to have that out in the next year or so, but um, I am posting stuff on that with uh, on my uh, on my website so people can check that out as well. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Hazy, is there any other last minute things you want to say? Uh, no, uh, I think I've had a really interesting time discussing this topic. I think um, if people really, um, I think they should really check out your Substack. I think um, you're, especially with um, just the small amount I perused, um, I really like um, your way of structuring um, in your writing. So, yeah, I think there's a, like, yeah, extremely and- good positive and I highly recommend it. Hey, thanks so much for that, AZ. And I, I do have, um, I, I'm doing a free Kindle giveaway this Saturday. Uh, I don't know when the show's going to play, but uh, Saturday the 25th, um, I'm going to have free Kindle. Um, so anybody that wants to check out the book but doesn't want to spend money on it, um, get get a free copy on, on Saturday. Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me know about that. Hey, Lewis, one last thing. Do you have a physical copy of your book as well? I do. Yeah, you can get those on Kindle, but I'd be happy to send you a copy uh, for free if if you'd like. I was going to ask if I could get a signed copy. So when you blow yeah, up, you got it, man. <laughs> I appreciate it, Lewis. All right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, that's all I had. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, and this has been Record Radio. Thank you for tuning in. This is a bit last bit from Sola. And Hazy, if you want to say anything before we close out, And as always, you've seen us all in HD.